Good morning. My name's Brad. If you didn't know that, that's who I am. Uh, this summer, we've been walking through uh, a series, uh, walking through these elements uh, that make up the disciple-making life. Uh, we've been talking through really important, essential things uh, that have to do with what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how we take hold of that calling to be not just someone who follows Jesus, but invites others to follow Jesus as well. We've talked about uh, the, the power and the purpose of the gospel, that the gospel is uh, so much more than just a, sl- uh, a list of, of bullet points, uh, but that the gospel actually makes all things new. It redeems uh, our souls. It saves us. It forgives us. We've talked about our identity in Christ. Uh, we've talked about who we are uh, because of who God is and what he's done. We've talked about how to live that out uh, in everyday rhythms of life. Uh, We've had cool drawings and all sorts of really good stuff. We talked about what a missional community is. I mean, the list, I think it goes on and on. And if we're not careful, uh, the Christian life can become that, like a list of really good things, uh, really important things, really well-taught things that we have to do. Uh, a list of competing tasks to live the really, really good life. Uh, that, that if we're not doing those things, our life is a complete mess. Like, it's really easy to take what we've taught, uh, it's easy to even teach what I've taught, and believe that, um, man, there's, there's all of these number one important things to do. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but, but most advertisement, it seems like this, these days is about how there's only, all of life comes down to just one really important thing, and you need to do this really important thing uh, by this fern. You know, like, if you could buy this fern, your whole life would be better. Maybe I'm the only one that that's marketed towards me. Uh, but there's a lot of things like that. And if we're not careful, the calling to be a disciple can be like that. Here's this really important thing, and And if I'm not careful, every week I can stand up and say to you, this is what life is all about, right? It's just this one thing, and I can confuse you. Uh, This this series as well, we probably have been able to uh, memorize the thing called the Great Commission. It seems like almost every week we've talked about it. Uh, This is from Matthew chapter 28, uh, verse 17. Uh, Jesus stands up in front of his disciples. He's already been risen from the dead, and he says, all authority on heaven... And earth has been given to me. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And then at the very end, there's this phrase where he says, uh, and I will be with you always to the very ends of the age. I think that the, the commission, I mean, it's stuff that, I mean, I grew up in the church, so t-shirts and missions congresses and all those things. You know, the first part, like, Jesus has all authority. That makes sense. He rose from the dead. He conquered sin, death, and evil. Like, he's in charge. What does he do with his charge? He tells us to go, make disciples, baptize them, uh, teach them to obey. All the stuff that we've talked about so far. But I think there's this often just little forgotten phrase tacked on at the end, we might think, that maybe that's just to encourage people who are scared about doing this, where he says, I will be with you always to the very ends of the age. Uh, growing up, uh, we in Portugal is a beautiful place, just like California. People would come and visit us all the time. 
And we had these different routes. We had like a five-day package of family and friends visiting. We had a three-day package. They came, we would take them to all the sites. I'm sure you have a similar horrific one here in L.A. where like the three-day package includes taking people to Hollywood Sign and Santa Monica Pier, and then at the end you just want to like sterilize yourself in the tub forever. But we had that kind of thing. And one of the stops or one of the days was taking people along the gorgeous Portuguese coast to the very tip of uh, Europe. So that at the very end, there's this, uh, where the nose, if you know geography well, Portugal has a nose. We would drive people out to the very tip of the nose. And along the way, we always pulled over and stopped at this place uh, called Boca do Inferno, which means the mouth of hell. And we would pull over along with tons of other tourist buses from people from all over the world. And you'd get out and it would be like dusty and hot uh, and noisy with all of this activity. And you walk past this cafe where we would ask our dad, could we get an ice cream? And he would say no. And then we'd walk and what there were were just rows and rows of just the, the cheapest, strangest merchandise you could ever buy. Where people were clamoring over buying tablecloths they're never going to use. Uh, little... Uh, pictures of Portuguese homes that they're never going to really put up. You know, magnets and spoons, and it was just this big fair of, like, purchasing uh, little trinkets to take home and prove. You know, this was before Instagram, where you had to buy stuff to prove that you went somewhere that other people should be jealous of. (laughs) But this, for me, in my childhood, uh, seeing it, experiencing the people that sold uh, things there knew my mother by name. Like, they, it's like, that's how often we were there. Uh, and it really was the mouth of hell to me. Uh, it just, uh, we would sit there, my brothers and I, and just like say, what, what have we done with our lives? We had so much promise. Remember? Yesterday we were playing, playing Nintendo 64. And now here we are at the mouth of hell. But what's interesting is... Uh, there's a, there was a little path from all the shopping and all the coffee shops. There's this little tiny path that took you up on top of this cliff. And there, uh, on this cliff that was uh, hundreds of feet in the air from the ocean, there was uh, a circle that had been carved out, eroded through like the crashing of the waves. And, and what would happen is waves would come in, they would smash against this hole, and water would shoot up this like massive natural geyser. And that is why it was called the mouth of hell. This like hole that, and it was incredible. Just the power of tons and tons of water coming rushing in. And you could even see it felt like the erosion continually happening and just the power and the awe of this thing. And, and there next to it is a little plaque that says, Boca do Inferno. But that's really what the whole pit stop was about. And my brother and I would sit there and watch this while tons of other people would be trying to buy trinkets and things. If we're not careful, I think that's exactly what we've made this last phrase of the Great Commission. It's really, I think it's what the whole thing is about. Like what Jesus is trying to use his authority with, what he's calling us into, is a life where we are with him always, forever. That's the main attraction that we can often just get distracted with other things off to the side. The whole point to a life sent with fellow followers to be under the authority of Jesus and on the mission of Jesus 
is to actually start today and live forever in the presence of Jesus. I think we're troubled by many things in life, uh, and we're really just kind of missing out on the sorts of life. That Jesus is with you, always. Sounds even like a little cliche, maybe. That God, the creator of heaven and earth, even, even Jesus, who lived, died, rose again, says he has all authority, and what he's using that authority for is to be with you forever. That in the end, we know the story, perhaps, that at the very end of time, uh, a city descends on earth and everything is made new. All of our hearts are made new. There's trees that are healing our souls. And it says, the dwelling place of God is now with men. Behold, let's get excited. But what we taste and what we experience after the Great Commission, all of those who follow Jesus, we experience that uh, oncoming reality today. That Jesus is with us. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with you is within you, as Leo Tolstoy has made famous. The kingdom of God is within you. There you have it. So embrace it. But how, right? I think that's an actual honest thing. Like All of life comes down to the fact that God has decided to be with you. But how do you experience and know that. That Jesus is with you in all your fights. Jesus is with you in all your career drama. Uh, Jesus is with you in all of your housing decisions. That Jesus is with you each moment in the hospital, in the courtroom. Like That Jesus is with you. There's a moment in Jesus' life where His disciples come to Him and they say, Hey, can you teach us to pray? All the other people teach, teach their followers how to pray. Can you teach us how to pray? And I think that what Jesus gives the disciples after that is not uh, words that this is what God wants to hear when you talk to Him. Like this is, God, God's up there or wherever and He's got a checkbox wondering if you're going to say the right things. I don't think that's what, what Jesus instructs us in. I think what, actually what he tells us is, this is how uh, you pray to understand the reality that Jesus is with you. These are words that he's given to us as a gift for us to focus our lives, our hearts, even to come into the reality that everything we do is in the company of the Savior of the world. So this morning I want us to look at these words, look at this prayer, because I believe that as we do that, uh, it'll transform the way that we are a church, or the way that we are as the people of God, or even the way that we are when we look at the list of things that make up a disciple-making life. Uh, not that uh, it's, it's pretty, I don't know, popular to say prayer is really important, right? Yeah. Prayer is important. We all agree with that. But I believe that it has this uh, unbelievable uh, necessity within us, not because we need God to do things for us, but because we don't really understand that God is with us. As the Apostle Paul charges us is that we should pray without ceasing, or, or that at all times we should be giving thanksgiving. But then it's, what is that 
actually look like, and I think that's what these words are that that Jesus gives. And it's from Luke chapter 11. Uh, Verse 1, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. There it is. The prayer of life. He starts with this word, Father. Right off the bat. It's as if Jesus thought, what what word could I use that would be the most emotionally charged word anyone could express? When you pray to God, start with Father. I mean, in a word, our minds have to go to the understanding that we have dads uh, who have uh, let us down or been exceedingly good or whatever mixture of it is, but, but every human on the face of the earth today and always has truly found some sort of identity or marking by who their father is, even if they never knew them. Father. With this word, he's giving us, though, a full view of who God really is. It's the fullest image that we can even conceptualize of God. More than creator, I think that's far beyond our ability to conceive that God creates uh, a universe out of nothing. Uh, It's fun to discuss in philosophy class, but I don't think any of us truly can wrap our minds around that. Instead, he starts with Father, this intimate word, this intimate image, this intimate reality of how God has decided to make himself known to us as a father. Uh, Later in the the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells this story about a father and two sons. I'm sure you've heard it before. But in this story, the father who has this big estate and he has two sons, one of the sons comes to him and says, hey, I would like my inheritance now, today. Like, give it to me now. Uh, Let's pretend you died today and then I get my share of the the money. And so the father would have had to sell his estate or sell off half of it as if it was a a divorce, and then take that money, and then he gave it to his son. Then that son went off really far away, uh, like all most of us have done to our parents. We left and went far away to their shame and sadness. And there in this land far away, he took all of this money and spent it. And in classic, like, Jesus storytelling fashion, he doesn't tell us how long, just that it ran out eventually. Then the son, who's now begging for food, eating pig trough, we, maybe you understand that, that section, that for me as a child was the main point of the story, of like, so what is he, he's eating like corn on the cob, and, uh, but, the, but then he's there, in the mud, in the filth, having lost his entire inheritance, uh, having nothing else to do in life. He was, he was born, as they say, you know, like on first base, full of privilege, and he had squandered it. He didn't have anyone around. 
And he says, I could at least go back and be a servant in my father's house. He treats his servants better than this guy is treating me. So then somehow he gets back to his father's home and, and he's rehearsed this speech of what he's going to tell his father about, I wasted my money, I'm so sorry, can I come in and be one of your hired hands? And the father comes to him, runs to him, greets him, meets him, and before the son can say anything, the father is embracing him and planning a party as if the party had been planned as soon as the son left. As soon as the son left, the father said, hey, when he comes back, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a calf ready to go. We're going to invite everyone. We're going to shut down all enterprises for the day, and we're going to celebrate when my son comes back. The, son gives a, or the father gives this really great declarative speech. My son who was dead is now alive. Welcomes him home. When Jesus says, we begin by saying, Father... We're saying father to that type of father. That is how God has said, this is who I am. But that story doesn't end there, right? There's another brother who all the while stayed, stayed home, worked hard, did all the right things. Whatever his dad asked him to do, he did those things. He stayed and took care of his share of the inheritance and his and his father's house still. When the, when the younger son comes home and, uh, and is welcomed back into the family as a son, the older brother knows uh, his inheritance just got cut in half again. Even probably all the growth that he had done for his father's household. While his, son, while his brother was out doing who knows what, he grew the business, he grew the family farm, And now that farm was going to get cut in half and given back to his son. The brother was angry. The brother goes outside. He refuses to go to the party. But then the father goes out to him, sits with him, pursues him, and asks him questions. Just like God does with Jonah. Just like God's done with you many times. He comes and he asks you questions about why you're angry and if you're going to come and join the party. And the son's angry and it leaves on this like cliffhanger. Except what the father says is, you've been with me always. I've been with you. What more do you want? Both sons had this problem of wanting things from the father. One way or the other. One wanted it really cheaply. One wanted it very costly. But both with themselves in the center of, I want the things that the father gives, but I don't want to know him and be in relationship with him. To both sons, the father was just a means of getting things. But what's incredible to me is not the conviction that we might feel finding ourselves as one of those sons, but the reality of who the Father was to both sons. When Jesus says, you start by praying, Father, He's saying you're praying to a Father who comes to you. God coming to you. God forgiving you. God relentlessly pursuing you. The Father who has an inheritance to give. 
When you're praying Father, that's who you're praying to. The Father who has a pursuit of you. In Galatians chapter 4, Paul writes that uh, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons of God, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if you're a son, then you're an heir through God. To pray Father is to pray the prayer of a child of God. To pray the prayer of a son and a daughter who's no longer a slave or a servant girl, but to be brought in as a daughter with a full inheritance that God has to give. The fullness of everything. And so, so Jesus is saying, pray, Father. Everywhere you go, in light of the Great Commission, whatever you do, Jesus is with you. And this is what He's saying and this is what He's doing in your life. You are accepted, you're approved of, you're loved, you're welcomed, you're home. Wherever you will go. The next thing He says after Father is we pray, hallowed be Your name. To bring our hearts and our minds into the understanding that not only is He a Father, but He is completely other and different and unique. He's, he is Himself holy and set apart. But it's also to pray uh, and to bring our hearts to our deepest motivations, which is that He would be made known. That the Father and all of His holiness and all of His otherness and the way that He treats us and His grace and His mercy, that all of that would get some recognition. That everywhere in the world, that the the whole of creation would be able to say, look at God and how holy and awesome is He. It's a prayer that peers into our deep motives. That, That the world would know what He's like. That the world would see Him and know Him. That God has a name. Wherever you are, wherever you go, Jesus is with you. And He is making His name great. Whatever situation or circumstance you're in, it's His name that's being made known and being elevated and being made holy. And then we pray, Your kingdom come. the kingdom of of grace, the kingdom of power to overcome the evil of this world, the kingdom of peace that just continually establishes a, a resting place for every soul, the kingdom that that pushes against all sin and evil, we pray your kingdom come. It's also to say, 
your things, Father. The things that you're about, the things that you desire. Your your will and what you see. Have that come. It's also the prayer of hope. It's the, it's a grittiness of this prayer. Uh, the the leading into temptation. That's also a gritty part of this prayer. Forgiveness is gritty, but this is the first, like touching the ground and touching the souls of what we actually experience. To pray, "Your kingdom come," means that we have to understand that what we see does not look like the kingdom. Those, those constant laments that we find in the Psalms of God, how, how long are you going to wait before you make this right and make this well? The gritty of realizing that, oh, out, outside in, in this world, we see uh, shootings and we see people being awful to each other. We see our own lives and our own households breaking apart and, and having all sorts of, of issues. And we pray your kingdom come. It's the prayer of hope in light of evil. That, that you are going to accomplish something. That you're the one who could. So everywhere you go, and whatever you are doing, Jesus is with you. And His kingdom is coming and he's accomplishing it wherever you go. Wherever you, whatever uh, dark situation you find yourself in, your kingdom come. And then the prayer turns, shifts slightly to us a little bit. Now, I, I always thought prayer was asking God for things that you want. You know, like, I always kind of knew Santa Claus wasn't real, but God probably was, and He's the one you ask for what you really, really want. It's strange, this prayer, after these first three, three things about the Father, the, the hallowing of His name, His kingdom coming, it then changes from some sort of cosmic level, God's name being known everywhere. God is a Father coming to us. Uh, it's just from uh, the kingdom of God expanding to give us daily bread. Give us daily bread. I think, you know, a quick place to go is that that we ask God to provide every substantial thing that we actually need to survive. But the, the juxtaposition of kingdom come, daily bread, I think are words that Jesus has given us so that we might understand that this infinite God who's accomplishing a massive mission also cares about your inconsequential needs. That the God who's father over every name and every tribe that will ever be named is also intimately aware of what you need and where you are and what's going on with you today. And we say and we ask, give us what we need, our daily bread. 
That Jesus, the Son of God, invites us to say, yes, God is about big things. But He's the Father who gives good gifts. Who gives you what you need. Daily bread. Jesus invites us to ask Him for what we need, what we long for. We ask for, we trust Him with security. That everywhere we go and whatever we're doing, Jesus is with us. And then as the guys in my DNA group texted this week, who could then be against us if He is with us? That kind of security, this prayer under the Father, under the Kingdom, under His famous name, daily bread. The life of Jesus, He does... uh, Uh, one really great miracle a couple of times. He feeds a lot of people with nothing. Uh, I was, uh, yeah, he feeds 3,000, he feeds 5,000, he feeds 4,000. It's pretty cool. He's like a multiplier of of food and bread. The Gospel of Matthew, after he does one of these big feedings, uh, his disciples come to him and are asking him questions, and he gets uh, frustrated, I think it's safe to say. And he says, you guys just keep wanting bread. You just keep wanting bread. Just like the Israelites, you just wanted manna, manna, manna. Now you just keep asking me for bread. And he says, but I am the bread of life. He's just done this miracle where he's fed thousands of people. And he says, these people are going to get hungry again. Which, side note, I think that's why I had to do this miracle multiple times. Uh, people didn't strategically think through lunch. And he continually fed them. He continually gave them daily bread. But then he says, you will eat and eat and still be hungry. It's like one of those fascinating parts of Thanksgiving traditions that you still eat leftovers the same night that you ate them. Like the leftovers you don't even have to put in the fridge because you're like, well, I guess we should eat again. It's been five hours and I'm hungry already. And that's what Jesus says. You can consume the stuff of this world and you're always going to be wanting more. And then he says, but I am the bread of life. Whoever comes, whoever eats of me, whoever takes of me is not hungry, but is satisfied forever. Jesus invites us, pray for our daily bread. And He is with us always. Satisfying us always. Then He says that we should ask and we should pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive others. As we ourselves forgive everyone who's indebted to us. I think he's cutting to kind of the core concerns of every, every human. What are we going to eat? And what am I going to do with all these people who have wronged me? What am I going to do with all the wrong that I've ever done? How am I going to have a relationship with anyone? Because they've hurt me and I've hurt them in return. You guys ever done that? Or is that, is that just me? No? Good. It's a core part of what it means to be a human. 
not just needing food and needing sleep and those things, but also that we harm each other. We sin against the living God and we sin against other humans, images of God. Uh, We reduce people to uh, just things to use or manipulate. We reduce people to uh, methods of conquest. We sin. And Jesus says, when we pray, look to your sin. Look to those who've sinned against you. And ask Him for the treasure of forgiveness. Ask Him for forgiveness. That we come before God and we say, I've not just messed up, but I've broken the world. I've broken the people I care about the most. I think, interestingly, uh, as, a, as a culture, it's probably through like HR representatives and things like that, we've become really good at uh, textbook reconciliation, right? Um, at least I, I got lessons on it when I worked at Starbucks, and I got more lessons on it when I worked at Hertz, and then a whole lot more when I worked at UPS. It was like, this, this is what you do. You know, someone comes in and they say, you know, you did blah, blah, blah to me. And then the other person says, I hear you, and I hear that what you're saying is, is that I did blah, blah, blah to you. And, and then you work through that pattern, right? Anyone do this at, at work? And that's called forgiveness in our, you know, like we really figured things out. Uh, we can even rely on the facts like, man, I had a beef with you, I went and I told you, now we're all good, right? But how often does that work out? I mean, I can just think, you know, speak from my corporate experience. Uh, it hardly ever works out. The next day, people are still uh, the same. And I am still unsatisfied with their apology. Did they really hear me? Did they really care? Did they really have remorse? <coughs> Excuse me. And sometimes we, we feel that need to, to demonstrate remorse. So we cry, or we apologize, and we grovel. Now can, there be, can we all be good in our relationship? But that also doesn't work. At least it hasn't worked for me. What Jesus is talking about, that we ask for forgiveness, and that we would be able to extend forgiveness, is so much deeper than did we flesh it all out in, purpose, in, in person? Did we talk it all through? He's talking about that we go to God first and say, do you forgive me? Do you forgive me for rebelling against you and the way that you created the world and the way that you created these other people? <coughs> Excuse me. Could I have some water? Thanks, love. Um, Jesus saying at the heart of the human, we need to trust and understand forgiveness more than any other superficial thing. 
In fact, in multiple occasions, Jesus explains that that's what he came to do. That's the authority that he has. Thank you. Just so choked up about forgiveness. (laughs) Jesus, uh, in the very beginning of his ministry, we'll actually talk about it in a couple weeks in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, He... Uh, is teaching in someone's house. It's really packed. There's tons of people. Some friends come uh, carrying a paralyzed man. There's no space for them in the house. Um, And so they climb on top of the house and they dig a hole and they put the man down at Jesus' feet. Awesome story. First sermon I ever preached was this story. Jesus uh, looks at the man and doesn't heal him, but he says, your sins are forgiven. And people are mad. How can you say that you forgive sins? I mean, they're really mad. Not that he didn't heal this person and he's healed other people. But they're mad that he would offer forgiveness. And then Jesus says, "What's, what's harder to forgive sins or have this person walk? Then the person gets up and walks carrying his mat. It's like a great, great story. And all of his friends are there. Man, you got healed and forgiven. Holy cow. Double, double dipping, serving of God. I think Jesus is uh, pointing to the fact that we are uh, we're paralyzed by the pain and the suffering and that our deepest problems are about forgiving ourselves, forgiving other people around us putting ourselves in that judgment seat even, of saying, can I forgive that person? Did they earn it back enough? Or we put ourselves in that seat and we say, can I forgive myself? Which is just such a funny 2000s phrase. Where I'm the person who's in charge of forgiveness and I'm looking at my own life uh, without bias and I'm saying, can I forgive me? Jesus saying, you have graciously pray, asking the one who actually gets to decide, the one who actually died and rose again for all sins, ask him for forgiveness. Everywhere you go, whatever you are doing, Jesus is with you, and he is saying over your life, And he's demonstrating it with the scars in his hands. You are forgiven. Then the last thing he says is, lead us not into temptation. I like this one. Because it shows Jesus' pessimistic side. Uh, As a writer... I know that you can write this same sentence a really positive way, right? Like, and lastly, lead us into doing good, right? Like, you could write it that way. Like, Jesus could have said it that way. He said, lead us into doing all the best stuff. Instead, he says, for our hearts, what we need to pray is to say, lead us not into temptation. Ask him for the power 
to overcome temptation and what's deeper. My, my theory is it's not so much the temptation of looking at the wrong things and doing the tiny little things that we often consume our minds with, but the temptation of saying, uh, hallowed be my name. The temptation of saying, our Father is withholding. The temptation of saying, uh, my kingdom needs to come. Those are the big temptations. Or give us, God, my daily jet, and my daily house, and my daily career, and all the things that I expect to get materially from this world. He's saying, lead us away from that temptation. Or the temptation to be the judge over others. The last thing is for our good. Remember, Jesus gives us these words, this prayer, so that our hearts and minds could actually understand the reality that God is with us always. And it's lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into the place where we think that we have to do all of these other things. I have no idea who said this, but they were smart. Uh prayerlessness is a sign that we think we're God. We think that we are the master of the universe, that we are the the king of all things, that we're in charge. Who needs God? You know, and as we wrap up this series, do we really need the Spirit of God to lead us and be with us? Because we've got cool drawings You know, we have an acronym that spells BLESS. Do we need Jesus to fill our everyday life? Jesus says, when you pray to the Father, ask Him to lead us from temptation. Because all of life comes in the end to living underneath the Father's care and His kingdom and His name. And all of death comes from living outside of it. Everywhere you go, Jesus is leading you. And every trial that you have, every suffering, every because that's really when we take control, right? That's when we seek our name and our kingdom and we say that God is withholding when things aren't going well for us. Jesus is leading you. And every opportunity you have uh, to go back to your own kingdom, He is with you. This is the kingdom of God. This is the prayer that He asks us. So that the disciple-making life really does come down to the commission that Jesus gives us to be and make disciples. That all authority on heaven and earth is His. He's that kind of God. And that He has given us and He sent us. Go. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That we are a sent people. Anyone who comes to Jesus, and we'll see this when we study the Gospel of Mark, and says, I want to I follow you. His answer is like, well then get ready to walk really far. He really is a God who sends us. Who gives us a mission and a purpose beyond what we could understand. 
He gives us the purpose of having our, our, our identity in the identity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He sends us out to do the commands of Jesus and teach other people that we would love God and love one another and love our neighbors. But let's not uh, see this last phrase as a tack on, but as really the whole thing. Because he uses this word, and lo, or behold, I am with you always to the very ends of the age. What do you get for all of this giving of yourself and this dying to self, this caring for others, this mission of God? What do you get for all this disciple-making life? Like, what is the treasure that you get for that at the end? Jesus tells you, I am with you always. And that is so much more than what we could ever see. So let's be a church that puts the Father at the center of everything, that puts our whole life and all of our stresses under Jesus and alongside of Jesus, who is with us always. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we're thankful for you that you come to us, that we are accepted and approved of because of the Son. Father, we pray um, for your name in this city to be great. Uh, we pray that through all of our lives that um, you would be made holy and seen as holy. And we pray for your kingdom to come in this church, that, that your will and your desires would not be contested in this place and among us as people that your kingdom would also come in the city and that it would be different than we imagined, but that we would see it as peace and grace and love extending everywhere. We pray for our brothers and sisters moving and starting and establishing a church in Venice, that that would be your kingdom come and that they would experience and know that. We pray for you to meet all of our needs, that we'd be satisfied in you. Pray for forgiveness in this body. Forgiveness that comes from looking at you, the forgiver. We pray for uh, a leading. We need you to lead us away from the temptation of building a kingdom or building our name or building our, our world for ourselves. Thank you, Jesus, for being with us always. You are the gift of life. Amen.